John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, it says, Now after the two days he departed from there and he went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Many years ago, a group of so-called scholars created a forum, which they called the Jesus Seminar. The scholars in, included people like Robert W. Funk and Roy W. Hoover and others, and they wrote in one of their writings, quote, the, the Jesus of the Gospels is an imaginative theological construct into which has been woven traces of that enigmatic stage from Nazareth, traces that cry out for recognition and liberation from the firm grip of those whose faith overpowered their memories. The search for the authentic Jesus is a search for the forgotten Jesus. Who is this so-called forgotten Jesus? Well, according to them, he is a Jesus who didn't die for your sins. He's a Jesus who didn't perform miracles. He is a Jesus who did not rise from the dead. The, gym, the Jesus Seminar calls him the forgotten Jesus, but they might just as well call him the fraudulent Jesus. Others suggest Christianity suppressed alternative gospels that, according to them, portray Jesus in a more accurate way. Dan Brown became famous writing a book called The Da Vinci Code, which was later made into a movie uh, starring, what's his name? In which he suggests that the fraud wasn't necessarily perpetrated by Jesus, but rather the well-meaning disciples of Jesus. And if the ministry and message of Jesus is a hoax, started by Jesus or his disciples, the net result is millions of people are at best misguided and at worst deceived. But if not, then the Jesus Seminar and Dan Brown join a large company of skeptics and unbelievers who have both denied and dishonored the historical Jesus. I'm here to tell you that in denying and dishonoring Jesus, it becomes one of the most telling evidences of a profound lack of historical, biblical faith. In a movie called A Few Good Men, there's a, a particular character played by Tom Cruise, and in the movie, Tom Cruise makes this statement, it doesn't matter what I believe, it, it only matters what I can prove. And it's interesting, a lot of people believe a lot of things about Jesus, but they're unwilling or unable to prove it. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? The answer to that question is perhaps the most far-reaching question you can both ask and answer. It affects how we live in the here and the now, but it also will become the determining factor of where you spend eternity. Bono, the lead singer of U2, was quoted as saying, I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this Jesus? Who 
Was he who he said he was, or was he just a religious nut? That's the question. Unquote. Did the Gospels get it right? When we read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, does it give us an accurate, historical, factual account of the life, the words, the works, the miracles, and the ministry of Jesus? Is the historical Jesus lost in a fog and a fiction, the smoke of wishful thinking, of fanaticism, blinding any real attempt to see the real Jesus for who he really was? Did the skeptical scholars get it right? Did the early church reinvent Jesus? I'm here to tell you that the early church didn't reinvent Jesus. It's the unbelieving and skeptical scholars who reinvented Jesus. What is biblical faith? Well, Jesus is the object of our faith. Paul would write about it years later in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and 2. Paul would write, Therefore, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The consistent testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the consistent testimony of Peter, James, John, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead. It shouldn't come as any surprise in every generation there's a deliberate, conscious effort to discredit the Bible and the testimony of the Bible. And in that discreditation, there is the dishonoring of the Lord Jesus. And we sometimes forget that. We talk about a dialogue and a healthy skepticism. But I've got to tell you something, that that healthy skepticism is really an unhealthy spiritual plague, a cancer that eats people's soul. Rather than believe the message of Jesus, they reinvent a Jesus to their own liking, more suitable, more in in keeping with their unbelief in popular culture, film, media. Jesus is sometimes depicted as a crazed, delusional rabbi. Sadly, some suggest before the invention of and distribution of antipsychotic medication, Jesus heard voices. But that if he lived in the here and in the now, we could make those voices go away with some Paxol or Prozac. Some more charitable see Jesus as a great thinker and philosopher and reformer. Some world religions even have suggested that Jesus was a great savior, an incarnation of Krishna like the Hindus, an angelic being like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the spirit son of Elohim, a glorified man in yonder heavens like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teach. Some believe Jesus to be a great prophet in a long line of prophets. The list would include Baha'i and Muslims. Everyone claims their Jesus is the real one. Charlotte Allen in her book, The Human Christ, wrote, quote, The liberal searchers found a liberal Jesus. The deists found a deist. The romantics found a romantic. The existentialists an existentialist. The liberationists a Jesus of class struggle. Unfortunately, the only one left out of the list, of course, and tragically, are the atheists. 
Because even by the wildest stretch of imagination, they can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus was an atheist. When we present Jesus in a way that denies him and degrades him and denigrates or diminishes his true identity, his true nature, his true mission, his true teaching, we dishonor him. Many people in the world feel an absolute freedom to distort and confuse and disregard the repeated testimony of God in the Bible concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. So what is the truth about Jesus? What is the evidence of true biblical faith? Well, for one, we honor Him. Number two, we receive Him. Look again, the scene and the setting for faith in verse 43. Now, after the two days, he departed from there, and he went to Galilee. Jesus had spent the last two days in Samaria. Remember from verse 5 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 42. Jesus, you'll recall, sat at the well. Jesus, you will recall, offered this woman living water. Jesus, you will recall told her that He was the Christ, the Messiah, who was foretold by the prophets. And when you come to the end of the section in verse 42, look again at at verse 42. It says, Now we believe, we have heard Him ourselves, and many more believed because of His own word in verse 42. There was an exciting revival that broke out in Samaria as people heard the testimony of Jesus concerning himself. And remember, remember, from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, the message, Jesus came from the Father. God has sent his Son. Remember the most famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him He might be saved. And so the message of hope is preached and believed. And you would think that the first place one would look to find the real Jesus is the Bible, where we find in His own words what He believes about Himself. We live in a world and we live in a culture where we know that people misrepresent themselves. You may have misrepresented yourself at one time or another. If I really wanted to know you, really know you, would the best person to ask is you or your wife or your husband? Where could I find out the truth about you? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the best place to find out the truth about Jesus are the words of Jesus and the testimony of those people who are closest to him. Why did Jesus leave this successful revival taking place in Samaria to go to a place where he had received a chilly reception? And we knew, know that he did receive a, a chilly reception in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. In the middle of that section in chapter Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read these words, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's the Galilee, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great 
light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus went back to the Galilee. The Galilee was far from Jerusalem. The Galilee was a place far from the seat of worship. The Galilee was a place that was constantly being overrun by Gentiles. Yet the prophet Isaiah declared that God's Messiah would go there and shine there. Do you really want to know about the historical Jesus? Then go to the place where he went. John Corson rightly points out the scripture was not simply predictive for Jesus, but directive for his ministry. In other words, the scriptures did not simply predict the ministry of Jesus. They did that and more, but provided direction for the ministry of Jesus. Remember what the Bible said. Messiah would come. He did come. Messiah would be born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. But the scriptures, according to Isaiah, said this is where and when and how and under what circumstances he would minister, he would go to the Galilee. And so Jesus went to the Galilee. The scriptures are written about him and the scriptures are fulfilled by him. The scriptures predict Jesus. They reveal Jesus. But guess what else they do? They provide a direction for the ministry of Jesus. And what is, why is that important to you? Because if you will read the scripture that predicts Jesus, if you will read the scripture that reveals Jesus, guess what else the scripture will do? It will provide direction for your life and your search. As you ask and answer questions that are important to you, remember the ancient land of the New Testament, the place we call Israel, the Holy Land, was divided into three sections. I talked about this the last time we met. In the northern part was the Galilee. In the middle part was Samaria. In the southern part was Judea. Palestine was a remote outpost on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. Romans would have included Palestine as a part of Syria, the region of the Galilee surrounding the Sea of Galilee. The Lord prepared this region to not only be a crossroads of culture, which it was, there were roads that extended from the Assyrian Empire to the north, to Egypt to the south, to the European Rome Greek culture to the, to the west, and the Parthian culture to the east. It's literally, if you draw a map, it forms a cross, and at the intersection of the cross is the Galilee. It wasn't just simply the crossroads of culture. Guess what else it was? The place that Jesus grew up. The place that he called home. Paul gives us a little clue in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent Jesus at the exact moment in history that was ordained by God. God had been preparing the Galilee for years and years and years. The Galilee had experienced an influx of people from all over the ancient world. 
The world's leading roads and trade routes went right through its borders. And in the ancient world, the Galilee had a considerable population of Samaritans and Phoenicians and Syrians. It was also a fertile farmland coupled with its strategic location. It was a great place to set up shop. There was a city, a Roman colony there called Sepphoris, which was just outside of Nazareth, about five miles from the place where Jesus grew up. If you go to Israel with me this year or next year, that particular land, the Galilee, is much less populated than it was even during the time of Jesus. According to Josephus, who led the Jewish revolt and resistance in the northern part of the Galilee, when the Romans would eventually come and destroy the temple, he was the Roman general, and there he records that there were over 200 cities in the Galilee with a population of 15,000 or more people. There were literally multitudes. There were literally multitudes of people for Jesus to reach. So he goes back to the Galilee because he's directed by the Scripture. But he goes back to the Galilee because there are real people there. We would consider Galilee to have been a place where a lot of cultural diversity was taking place. Fresh ideas. There were liberal people and conservative people and progressive people and independent people. Jesus, we learned earlier in John's Gospel, the Bible says he went to his own, but his own received him not. And so the first evidence for faith, respect and reverence for Jesus, look at verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When we first read this passage, we might be left with the impression that it seems a little out of place. Well, what are, what are you saying? For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. What is his own country? Is it, is it Israel? Is it Judea? Is it, is it the Galilee? Whatever else it means, it means this. Jesus had earlier had a very bad experience in his hometown. His neighbors in Nazareth, the people who he had grown up with, rejected him and even attempted to kill him. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And in that context, if you look a little bit later down at Luke chapter 4, verse 28, it says, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Would you say that if someone's trying to kill you, that that's a sign of a bad relationship? It doesn't get any more rejected than when the people you grow up with, the people you went to school with, the people you played with, the people that you loved, reject you. And Jesus wasn't the first prophet to be rejected by the closest people. 
You remember the story in the Old Testament of Joseph, the son of Jacob. You'll remember how he grew up, how in his family he had those bizarre dreams about people bowing down to him. He was despised and rejected by his brothers according to Genesis chapter 37 verses 23 through 36. You'll remember that they took their despised brother and they threw him in a pit and they sold him into slavery. You'll remember that even in that rejection, God had a plan and a purpose that God was going to raise up Joseph to save the nation and to save his family, if you will. David was despised by his older brother. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 28, the sweet psalmist of Israel, we read about him, quote, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. You're just a little kid who's trying to get out of his job. You came here because you wanted to see an R-rated movie. Lots of blood and violence. Jeremiah was despised and rejected in his hometown of Anathoth. In Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 21, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Stop talking about God. And stop talking about the messages of God. If you don't stop talking about God and the messages of God, we're going to kill you. Paul was despised and rejected by his countrymen, according to Acts chapter 9. Jesus was rejected and despised in his hometown. So the testimony of Jesus that a prophet is without honor in his own country isn't said as a prophetic nicety in order to give you an understanding of the ancient scriptures concerning the relationship of men of God and the people that that they were trying to minister to only, but he says it with sorrow and heartache and pain. The people that Jesus grew up with didn't believe in him, didn't believe in his ministry, didn't believe in his mission. You've all heard the expression that familiarity breeds contempt. And so it shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't surprise you that the person less least likely to hear from you is your wife or your husband, your brothers or your sisters, your mother or your father. You grew up with us. I changed your diapers. How can a person who I changed your diapers lead into all spiritual truth? But guess what? God anoints and appoints people at specific times for specific reasons. Perhaps when you became a Christian, you met with resistance, you met with rejection, you were even met with hostility, and I suspect that Jesus was preparing his own disciples for the inevitable. Following Jesus has a price. You're a professional. You have no business talking about Jesus. 
We're a professional business. We're a professional group. We're a professional this. We're a professional that. You have to leave your belief at home. But guess what? Being a Christian means when you're a Christian, you're a Christian at the hospital. You're a Christian at the police department. You're a Christian at the business. You're a Christian at the place where you live and work. You're a Christian wherever you go and and whatever you do. And the price may include rejection by the people you love the most. So what does it mean to have faith? Whatever it means in part, it must mean to honor Jesus. And the people of Nazareth did not honor Jesus. But what about the rest of the people in the Galilee? Did they honor Jesus? Many religions say they honor and they respect Jesus. By the way, the word honor is the Greek word temin. It means to value or to esteem. It means to respect. In the ancient world, depending on the context, the word implied superior standing, exaltation, distinction, homage, Reverence, and again, depending on the context, even worship, when the honor is extended to deity, we worship the true and the living God. We honor Him. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul would write, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize that failure to worship Jesus is, in fact, dishonoring Him? To be entrenched in a lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience, of skepticism, is dishonoring to Him. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have real questions. And that when those real questions come up, that that we shouldn't explore the real answer. For those people who would never, never, ever, ever think to dishonor God's revelation of Jesus in the Bible, dishonor Him every day by the way they live. The word honor can also mean a price paid or payment received. Like a like credit due of consideration based on value. In this context, Jesus is to be honored with our lives. True honor is willing to pay the price that is due to the Lord. What do you owe him? The right answer is everything. The man or the woman who honors the Lord gives his life to the Lord. And so the Bible describes Jesus as deserving all honor, all praise, unrestricted, uninhibited. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, meaning at least in part the source of grace, the source of truth. 
honoring Jesus is clear evidence of biblical faith. Listen carefully. Dishonoring Jesus is clear evidence of a lack of biblical faith. So I don't care if John Dominic Crossan says that he honors Jesus. He dishonors Jesus. I don't care if a person says, well, I honor Jesus as a great man, possibly even the greatest man. I honor Jesus as a prophet, quite literally, quite specifically, might even be the the greatest prophet ever known. But honor that falls short of the deliberate honor that's due him has the net result of being dishonoring. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that if one of our friends or one of our uh, one of our starlets or stars, so, some professional athlete or movie star mentions the name of Jesus, that somehow that that person is talking about the same Jesus in the New Testament. It's not always true. The person goes up to the microphone. I'd like to thank Jesus for winning this Academy Award, even though she plays some God-dishonoring role. The second evidence for faith is to accept and appreciate Jesus. Look at verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Remember, in chapter 2, after the wedding feast of Cana, you'll remember that Jesus went to the temple, and you remember the story of how he drove out the money changers. He overturned the tables. He made some surprising statements that the house of God would be a house of prayer. They saw it. Some of the Galileans saw it. The opposite of acceptance is snubbing and rejecting. By the way, did Jesus expect and receive a warm welcome in the Galilee? Or did Jesus get the cold shoulder? Did the Galileans receive Jesus as Lord? Look again at the text. And they received him. Did they receive him as Lord? Or did they receive him as a person who's in the spotlight? As a miracle worker? John MacArthur suggests, and I quote, Curiosity seekers eagerly hoping to see Jesus perform some more sensational feats. Thus the Apostle John writes with a sense of irony. The Galileans' reception of Jesus was not genuine, but superficial, shallow, unquote. They received him, but in what way? As an oddity? As an enigma? But there is still another argument, a powerful argument for the truth about Jesus. And that is the truth that Jesus Christ changes people who love him and follow him. They went, but did they receive him? Well, apparently, if the rest of the New Testament is any indication that there was a deep division that would take place in the Galilee as people began to think long and hard about the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus. Who is he? Who is he really? 
Long ago, William Barclay argued, quote, it may be that sometimes we have to argue with people until the intellectual barriers which they have erected are battered down and the citadel of their mind capitulates. But in the great majority of cases, the only persuasion that we can use is to say, I know what Jesus is like and what Jesus can do. All that I can say to you is to try him yourself and see what happens. What Barclay is in effect saying is, is this, that after the intellectual arguments to reject Jesus, to resist Jesus, to dishonor Jesus, as you talk to your family, as you, as you talk to your friends, as they marshal every single argument that they can think of in order to get you to, to, to leave them alone, But still, perhaps the most powerful argument of all is the argument that says, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And He changed me. The resurrected Jesus changed me. He forgave me. This is the way that I used to be and this is the way that I am now. He changed me. C.S. Lewis in his masterful book, Mere Christianity, lays it out like no other. He writes in one of the most quoted sections of his book, quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. My friend Lee Strobel has written a book entitled The Case for the Real Jesus. In the book, he takes up six different challenges, challenges in our times, the continual challenge to discredit and dishonor Jesus. He answers questions like, Did scholars uncover a radically different Jesus in ancient documents just as credible as the four Gospels? Can the Bible's portrait of Jesus be trusted? Did the early church tamper with the text? Have new explanations refuted the resurrection of Jesus? Were Christianity's beliefs plagiarized or copied from pagan religions? Was Jesus an imposter who failed to fulfill messianic prophecies? Should people simply be free to pick and choose whatever they want to believe about Jesus? Isn't it interesting how people will do that? They'll pick and choose whatever they want to about Jesus. But have you noticed how they react when you return the favor to them? How about if I believe about you just simply whatever I want to believe? That's hardly fair. Well, how about if I just simply believe based on what I actually hear you say and do? 
How dare you judge me? Have you noticed that we often will judge people by the worst thing that they ever did? Not by the best thing. Is that how you want to be remembered? By the worst thing that you ever said? By the worst thing that you ever did? And how, how, pray tell, should we remember Jesus? Based on the unbelief? Based on the agnosticism and the skepticism? Should we base our belief on the principle that others have rejected Him? And so will I. Or will you do the most decent thing? And that's conduct your own inquiry. Your own search. Are you willing to ask the question, who is Jesus really? And then be willing to find the answer where the evidence points you. To the New Testament. To those people who are closest to him. Don't you owe it to him to at least consider his claims, his own testimony, based on what he has to say. By the way, the rest of John's gospel is going to be devoted to that thing exactly. What is the truth about the Messiah? What is the truth about Jesus? What is the truth about his message? What is the truth about his death on the cross? What is the meaning of his resurrection? Minimum, it means that you can have life that you can experience forgiveness, that you can be reconciled to the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this tiny picture sandwiched in this little place, Lord, we pray that the evidence of our own faith would be made manifest. Do we honor Jesus? Have we received Jesus? And what does that reception look like? Hopeful enthusiasm, optimism, curiosity? Or is it based on the reality that a real Jesus really lives and died and rose from the dead and can change our life? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not receive Jesus in a superficial and in a shallow way. But Lord, in that deep way that causes us to trust Him wholly and completely. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be willing to simply believe the reinvention of Jesus by the skeptic and the unbeliever. But that rather, Lord, we would be willing to consider the claims of Christ and accept them or reject them on their own merit. Lord, for the honest searcher, Lord, I pray that they would have enough honesty to open up their Bible and read it for themselves. In Jesus' name.
Let's stand.